Hi everyone and welcome to episode 6 of the FFS show, a podcast about misinformation and fact checking by the ferret. I'm one of your hosts, Ali Bryan, and with me as always is my fact checking colleague, Mags Taylor. Hi Mags. Hi Ali, how's it going? Very, very well. We are a day away from the Scottish Parliament elections and as expected, we've been fact checking a number of statements by politicians. I think we said that this podcast will be stuffed full of dubious claims by politicians. That, <laughs> to be fair to them, has not happened. It's not, they've not been quite as dubious as we thought. They've been somewhat repetitious though, haven't they? They have, yeah. Uh, leaders debate number three. Ha- have we had many new claims to check? What do you reckon? Yeah, one or two, but the politicians are hammering home the points they were planning to for this whole campaign, I would say. They are, they are. And with that in mind, what have we been fact-checking, Max? Well, we've had a couple of checks about poverty. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, SNP leader, Mm. she had a claim about uh, fewer children living in poverty in Scotland. Her adversary, Anna Sarwar, the Scottish Labour leader who's standing in the same constituency, he also had a claim about children living in poverty in that constituency. Douglas Ross, he's been uh, repeating his claim about trade, uh, 60% of trade with the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, Patrick Harvey, uh, obviously of the Greens, has been speaking about fossil fuels and the North Sea. And Willie Rennie about Scotland having the highest drug deaths rate in Europe. So we were looking into that one as well. Great. Now, I heard that you had done an interview with a very special guest, or at least you had one lined up. Did you actually end up doing that interview with a special guest? I did. And can you reveal who it is? The special guest this week is... I was waiting for a drum roll, but that's fine. Is Professor John Curtis. John Curtis, polling expert. Polling expert, professor of politics at Strathclyde University and all-round Scottish politics icon. Is that too much to say? No, not at all. And very, very timely, given we're on the eve of the election. Give us a taster of what he he had to say. Well, I spoke to him. Uh, He was very generous to give us some of his time to talk about polling, what polling can tell you, what it can't, the problems with certain types of polling. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much about it before the interview, but here's a clip. No newspaper is going to cut to headline Boring election, nothing happened, campaign waste of time. If that's not a teaser, I don't know what is. So should we start off with a couple of fact checks then, Mags? Yeah, let's get going. Who, who should we go to first? Let's start off with Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross. Good idea. Mags, you looked at a check by... Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross, didn't you, about the amount of trade that Scotland does with the UK? That's right. Yeah, this is a claim that Douglas Ross has made a few times. So he he made it in the Channel 4 debate and he also repeated it on the Andrew Marr show. Uh, But basically, um, he he claims that Scotland does 60% of its trade with the rest of the United Kingdom. And he says that that's the biggest market for Scottish businesses. So what are the facts behind that claim? 
Well, the most recent statistics that are available relate to the 2018 year. Now, that's because uh, the Scottish Government's export statistics report wasn't compiled last year because of COVID. Um, So in in 2018, yeah, 60% of total exports went to the rest of the UK. That's 51.2 billion. Further, 19% went to the European Union and the remaining 21% went to the rest of the world. Um, so, I mean, it's accurate for him to say that 60% went to the rest of the UK. Mm. But if you break it down by sector um, and kind of depending what the goods and services are, it doesn't necessarily follow that the rest of the United Kingdom is the biggest market for Scottish businesses. Right. And that's because different businesses obviously trade with different people more or less. Exactly. Yeah. So according to the report, the, the biggest exports from Scotland are food and drink and financial services. And they, they right. were quite markedly different in terms of the destination. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, 62% of food and drink exports went to international markets, uh, including the, the European Union, right. with just 38% being sent to the rest of the UK. Whereas if you look at financial services, which is mm-hmm. the, the other b- biggest export sector, um, 83% of that went to the rest of the UK in terms of tra- transacting business, um, while just 17% was exported internationally. So th- there's quite a marked difference there. So to, to say it's the, it's the biggest business partner it really does depend on what your business is. So what verdict did we end up going for? Um, we, we gave them mostly true because, yes, it is fair to say if you're looking at trade figures as a whole, then, yes, 60% does go to the rest of the UK. Yeah. Uh, but to, to say that it's it's the biggest market for Scottish businesses isn't entirely accurate because some, some businesses will be saying, well, uh, we do hardly anything with the rest of the United yeah. Kingdom. Our biggest market is the EU or elsewhere overseas. Aliana Sarwar, a Scottish Labour leader, he has been grilling Nicola Sturgeon a fair bit on the constituency that they're both standing in. What was his claim in the Channel 4 debate to do with that constituency? He said that 48% of children in Nicola Sturgeon's constituency live in poverty. That's uh, Glasgow South Side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a, a very high figure, isn't it? What, what did you mm. find out when you looked into that one? It's an interesting claim because he's based it on a real report Mm. from a group called the University of Loughborough's uh, Centre for Research in Social Policy, Mm -hmm. um, which is a group that does uh, lots of kind of poverty statistical research. They did a report in 2019, which looked at uh, levels of child poverty in local authority and constituency areas across the UK. Basically, their report broke down the Scottish constituency, Scottish Parliament constituencies, um, Mm -hmm. including Glasgow Southside, which is Nicola Sturgeon's constituency, and found that the level of estimated child poverty was 46%. So first thing to note is that Anna Sauer has got the figure wrong. Two percentage points wrong, yeah. Um, And this this figure was was kind of widely reported in the Scottish media at the time. People will know that Nicola Sturgeon's constituency, particularly the area Govan Hill, which is mm-hmm. uh, an area in kind of the middle of her constituency, are regularly used as a kind of ammunition against against the Scottish government against Nicola Sturgeon because these are areas yeah. of quite high poverty. Yeah. So the a few issues with this claim. Firstly, it's quite out of date now. Not like massively out of date, but it's a few years. It's a few years old. But problem is that we can't tell within uh, Nicola Sturgeon's constituency because this report is the last, most recent report that looked at child poverty by Scottish parliamentary constituencies. So since that report, which was widely referenced, um, Mm. 
which which was referring to statistics from 2017-18, that sort of financial year. The Center for Research and Social Policy now released updated figures, but they're not for the same constituency. They now do the, use the uh, Westminster constituency, Glasgow South. Oh, right, okay. Which, uh, to people who are outside Scotland uh, in the UK, these are two overlapping but not the same areas. Glasgow South includes some areas that are in Nicola Sturgeon's Hollywood constituency, mm. um, but leaves out certain areas, including the aforementioned Govan Hill. Sure. Uh, it's not included in Glasgow South and is included in Glasgow South side. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon's constituency also includes uh, areas like Ibrox and the Gorbals, where Glasgow South, the Westminster constituency, <laughs> doesn't include those areas. So these are basically non-comparable. Yeah. Although they're not comparable, was there a big difference in the proportions between the two? Yeah, so in uh, the, the statistics for Glasgow South, which are from 2018-19, uh, found child poverty around 30%. Um, okay. So that is obviously a big difference, but we are talking about a, a different area. What verdict did you go for then? We ended up going with mostly true. Um, there's a few things that are slightly problematic in this claim. First one being that He's got the figure slightly wrong, mm-hmm. um, not by a huge percent, percentage points, but it's not 100% correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, while he's, he has used figures which are from a respected organization, they're from mm-hmm. the research is good, and um, they are the most recent available statistics for that specific constituency area. They're just a little bit old now, aren't they? But they are now slightly out of date, and yeah, the yeah. centre is no longer producing child poverty statistics yeah. via those constituencies. But we felt that the claim itself was based on kind of fairly robust statistics which are the most up to date even though they're now a few years out of date. You're listening to the FFS show. If you'd like to help us do more podcasting and more fact checking you can. Support us for just three pounds a month. Go to theferret.scot forward slash subscribe. Now it's time for my interview with polling expert, Professor John Curtis. I began by asking him, what sort of things should you look out for when you're reading a poll? Well, two things of which we would be aware. One, of course, is that uh, polls uh, simply uh, interview a sample of the population. They're trying in different ways to come up with methods that ensure that that sample at least perhaps after some statistical manipulation, is representative of whatever population to which inferences are are being made. Mm. Um, But that um, there is inevitably a degree of imprecision about that. So even if the sample is perfectly drawn, perfectly representative, um, you know, if, if the true value is around 50%, uh, with a sample size of a thousand, there is only a ninety-five percent chance that you're going to get something between forty-seven and fifty-three percent. Um, so the point is, there is uncertainty attached to polling, and that if you see a news story that says support for Party X is up by two points, you should probably go, well, maybe support for Party X is up by two percent, but maybe that's just sampling variation. Until quite a few more polls tell me that party X is X by 2%, then probably I should suspend uh, my belief. The second thing, of course, particularly once we move away from questions about behaviour or likely behaviour or reported behaviour, such as voting, uh, and we're looking at attitudes, is that you have to remember that people give answers to the questions that are asked. 
and there are usually many different ways of posing a question and that in general survey methodologists would say it's rarely a good idea to rely simply on the responses to one question and so that for example um, you know, if you've got a poll finding it says that 70% of people think that, for example, fox hunting of all kinds should be banned tomorrow. Hmm. Well, actually, maybe what you need to write is a survey that asks people about six or seven questions that ask people about fox hunting. Maybe ask about various possible ways of engaging in fox hunting. Uh, and maybe we discover that drag hunting might be discovered as more acceptable and perhaps there's a majority in favour, whereas that which is directly trying to kill a fox is not. I mean, who knows? I mean, the point is yeah. that um, polls, um, the, 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 the answers you get to survey questions are as good as the questions asked, and that one of the things that certainly goes on, particularly with respect to pressure groups, is a tendency to want to try and ask questions are trying to beget a different answer. So if the Countryside Alliance tells you that people are in favour, uh, we've done a poll and we're in favour of fox hunting, yeah. you might particularly want to look at the question then uh, if if the RSPCA were to publish a poll that says the majority of people are in favour of fox hunting. So in terms of uh, talking about these PR exercises and obviously paying mind to the person who's commissioned the poll, with reference to, for example, the current uh, Scottish election, a lot of the polls that are being commissioned are by partisan sources. So should we be more wary of them? It depends on what aspect you're interested in. When it comes to asking people about uh, what the, you know, how they're going to vote in an election, um, doesn't matter who's commissioned the poll, the polling organisations are asking the same question. And at the end of the day, there is no... Uh, what interests a polling company and is central to its reputation yeah. is getting as close to the uh, eventual result on the day in their final poll. That's what they're interested in. Uh, and that's more important to them than coming up with results that might be more congenial to their clients. Mm -hmm. What obviously is true beyond that area is that, well, at the end of the day, newspapers are driven by news values. Now, those news, the news values for an individual newspaper can, to some degree, be uh, asking uh, polling questions about subjects that, on which the paper has a particular line and with perhaps a tendency to word them in a certain direction. Like, you know, I mean, for example, you know, if you're a journalist on the on the Daily Express, and I should by the other way, I'm not particularly particularly picking out the Daily Express. I can no. say exactly the same thing about the Daily Mirror, but that you know, a, 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 a journalist on the Express says, you know, we'll, we'll we'll sometimes succumb to the temptation because of the zeitgeist in which they're operating to say, you know, uh, do you agree or disagree that Brexit is brilliant for Britain, right? And you mm -hmm. might go, well, agree, disagree, questions aren't terribly good. Why don't you ask people whether or not Brexit is good or bad for the country, which is kind of much more neutral. Um, uh, so, that, you know, uh, so both the subject matter and sometimes the wording of the questions will be influenced by the direction of the client. Now, Polling companies do operate under ethical rules. Market Research Society says, you know, the questions should be uh, fair and reasonable, etc. 
Um, but you know what is also true because you know, I've spent my professional career engaged in such arguments in private. Um, there is plenty of reasonable professional dispute between questionnaire designers about what are the best way of asking questions. Right. Yeah. Um, it's it's an art. It's not a science. Uh, we all do our best, um, um, but um, you know there's no perfect way of doing it. Um, so, um, you know, uh, therefore, there, you know, although you, there's a degree of ethical rules that regulate these things, at the end of the day, uh, there is also still uh, enough leeway for, for, to some degree at least, for us to find that, yes, the commissioning organisation, in of its subject matter and its approach to some of that subject matter, you may begin to get some clues as to what its agenda might be. Obviously, what, we're, what we find during the election campaigns, as sort of things start to ramp up, is that media will report tiny changes in poll results, you know, within one or two percent. Why is that something that you shouldn't do and something that's not advised? Oh, simply because you don't know whether or not the change is a real change or uh, it's just simply something variation, i.e. you nothing's changed in the population. You've just got a, you've, you've, you've freshly sampled the population and, you know, statistical theory says you take a fresh sample, you'll get a slightly different result, even if nothing has changed in reality. And the truth is, I mean, it's actually impossible. In practice, it's impossible for any poll, any single poll, to tell us whether something has changed. Because even if a poll says, oh, Labour vote up by 5% or Conservative vote up by 5%, the immediate reaction of any professional pollster will be, well, maybe... Or maybe this is an outlier because statistical theory does tell us that very occasionally, even when nothing has changed, hmm. you'll get a big difference. Okay, and therefore, the uh, and in a sense, this course is where news values cuts across the professional caution of pollsters. So journalists, of course, will want to say, you know, things have changed. This is the latest really big news story, and pollsters are inclined to say, well, maybe things have changed, but frankly. I'm now going to look out intently for the next poll. Uh, and it's only if you get two or three polls, all of which begin to show the same thing, you go, well, actually, probably something has happened. Uh, things really have changed, which is frustrating for journalists, uh, but tends to be the kind of caution that um, uh, those in the polling industry would prefer to exercise. I suppose part of the reason the media are going to focus on these tiny changes as well is that when we're in a situation like we are with the regional list where a 2% difference, you know, it can be the difference between no seats and a number of seats. So again, you're just urging caution. Yeah, and, and, and we have to acknowledge the uncertainty. So given the particular instance you cited, yeah, we've got one polling company now in Scotland, panel base, which on three occasions in a row has said, Alba is at 6%. And given the way the electoral system works, that means probably around a half a dozen seats. There's obviously a methodological difference there. It's something to do with either the kind of samples that panel base get or something or other about how they're asking the question. But, I mean, all the companies are prompting for Alba, i.e. they're including Alba in the list of options that people are being faced with if they're mm -hmm. answering these polls online. So it isn't a case of, in one case, people being prompted and the others not. Um, and it may remain a mystery until May the 8th when we find out the true answer. Um, you know, and equally, again, you know, in the Scottish polling, salvation has tended consistently to come up with slightly better results for Labour than most other polls. Who's right? 
who's wrong, we don't know. But these kind of house effects are quite common in polling. And again, it's one of the things that, you know, you learn to try to factor out in trying to get to some understanding of, well, where perhaps might we be, always bearing in mind at the end of the day, there's no guarantee that even the average of the polls is necessarily the, the correct answer. So how, how good do you think the media is at reporting polls? Well, the answer, of course, I think is variable. There, I mean, there are some journalists who, are, who know what they're doing and who, yes, will need to find some kind of headline to sell their story, not least because, like all journalists, they're keen to get the front page of their newspaper still, um, but who on the inside will kind of give you on the one hand or on the other and will demonstrate a degree of acumen about what are the uncertainties. Um, there are others who are less adept uh, at all of this, and there are... Now, once you get beyond polls and a commission by a newspaper, uh, there are probably too many journalists who uh, read the press release, presume the press release is right, and don't really ask the kind of critical questions about the press release they should be asking. But by the way, for anybody who is listening who is a journalist, there is a guide to the questions you should be asking of a press release on the British Council website uh, so that you can get some idea of, you know, quickly what you should ask about... Uh, a, a poll if it should uh, uh, come across your desk. Um, so, you know, the answer is variable. I mean, but what's said, one of the things that one has to say about the journalism world is that whereas once upon a time, basically virtually all journalists were adept at words and often relatively enumerate, um, the world of data journalism does mean there are now at least some journalists who are actually pretty good at polling. Um, and are as statistically literate as, as, as most of us. Um, and though, unfortunately, a lot of them currently have been f focusing their efforts inevitably on the pandemic rather than on polling. Yeah. Um, uh, but that probably has also uh, uh, improved uh, uh, matters uh, 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 to some degree. But yes, inevitably, it's, it's variable. And to some degree, yes, the reporting of polls is driven by news values that do kind of mean you need to be trying to persuade people that this is an important part. I mean, you know, no newspaper is going to cut to headline, boring election, nothing happened, campaign yeah. waste of time, all right? <laughs> Even though actually that might be the truth. So that's all we've got time for in uh, episode six of the FFS show. Have you had a good election campaign, Max? I have, I have. I've, I've enjoyed the, the debates. They've, uh, <laughs> some... <laughs> they, they, they've thrown up some, some interesting points for us to look into, haven't they? Yeah. Yes, they've been good for the fact checker, I'd say that. If not they, always they great have. for the viewer. <laughs> we'll be back in two weeks from now in the dawning of a new Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Or one's quite similar, based on polls. <laughs> and we all know about polls, don't we? If you want to help us do more fact-checking and more podcasting, go to theferret.scot forward slash subscribe and give us just £3 a month. Bye for now. See ya.